Welcome to the Fabulously Keto podcast aimed at improving health, vitality and quality of life. Eating real food in a ketogenic lifestyle. I'm Jackie Fletcher and I'm based in the UK. And I'm Louise Reynolds, an Aussie currently based in Bangkok, Thailand. Each week we will be bringing you guests who share their stories and discuss a range of topics which we hope will improve your health and well-being. Many of the guests, like us, came to Keto for Weight Loss and have stayed for their well-being, numerous health benefits and because they are living their best lives. We hope you will be inspired to incorporate these ideas into your own health journey so that you can feel better than you ever have before. Thinking about starting keto? Take a listen to episode number two, What is Keto and How to Start? Welcome to the Fabulously Keto podcast. This is episode 93. And today I have to start with a really big thank you to Joanne McManamy for supporting the podcast with her monthly Patreon pledge. And if you're enjoying these podcasts and would like to help us with the costs involved of running the podcast, then you can head over to patreon.com forward slash fabulously keto and choose your level of support. The link to our Patreon is also in the show notes, so you can get to that either by just pressing on your podcast app now and um, clicking on the link or going to the show notes, which are at fabulouslyketo.com forward slash podcast forward slash 093. We have also been nominated in the Key to Health Awards, which is run by Keto Kev of episode 72. And we've been nominated in the category of one of the most informative podcasts and we'd love to get your vote so please take a minute to vote for us so the link to do that is quite long and complicated so again we've put it in the show notes which you can get to from listening to your podcast on your app or on our website fabulouslyketo.com forward slash podcast forward slash zero nine three so today I'm talking with Jim Waller who is a colorectal surgeon, and although he's semi-retired now, he's still very involved with the tri-state colorectal surgeons. Dr. Jim's wife, Betsy, contacted me, and we had this long conversation, and she told me all about how she met Jim again, and Jim also tells a story in the podcast. So let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Jim. Dr. Jim Waller is a semi-retired colorectal surgeon living and practicing in Evansville, Indiana. He obtained his um, Bachelor of Science degree in biology from the University of Southern Indiana in 1977. He then attended Indiana University School of Medicine, graduating in 1980. After a five-year general surgery residency at Michigan State University, Dr. Waller did a one-year colorectal surgery residency at Ferguson Clinic Hospital also located in Michigan. He is board certified in both general and colorectal surgery and also a fellow of the American College of Surgeons and a fellow of the American College of Colon and Rectal Surgeons. He entered practice in 1986 and since 2019 has served as a consultant with his colorectal group. Dr. Waller has served as a clinical instructor at MSU School of Medicine and continues to teach classes at IU School of Medicine. 
He is married to Betsy, high school classmate. Both are low-carb, high-fat keto advocates. Dr. Waller moved to a low-carb diet over 20 years ago as part of a healthy lifestyle and because of his family history of significant cardiovascular disease. Welcome, Jim, to the Fabulously Keto podcast. It's fabulous to have you with us today. Thank you. And we always start by asking our guests, where in the world are you? Well, I'm actually in Fort Myers, Florida, because I'm down here with my daughter. But I, but I, I live in Evansville, Indiana. That uh, is a city on the Ohio River, and as far south as you can live in Indiana, because we're down in a little tiny toe-shaped section of the state. We're actually further south. For people listening in North America who, who might realize this, we're further south than Louisville, Kentucky, and Lexington, Kentucky, uh, and thus my southern accent that and the fact that my mother was from Tennessee and my father was from Kentucky. I I love that southern accent. It's really cool. It's kind of a it's kind of a we call it sort of a dirty accent because it's not as refined as the eastern Kentucky accent. It's not as refined as some of the, um, you know, some of the people in the far south. Yeah. Mm. Great. So we want to find out how you came because you've been low carb for a very, very long time, haven't you? So yeah. take us back and tell us, you know, what was happening before and how did you find low carb and what made you take it up? Well, I, I came to low carb quite by accident. And I, um, I was at a grand rounds at one of the hospitals where I, where I, where I worked um, and there were two physicians presenting, a, a man and a lady, and they and it was an, it was a it was a uh, grand rounds on, on obesity and obesity treatment. Before but you it, go for it, any it, further, can you for those of us that are not in the states, what does grand rounds mean? Oh, uh, grand rounds. Those are educational conferences. Most hospitals will have one on a regular basis, uh, and if you're in a residency program, you're going to have those on a regular basis. So it's it's an educational conference. Usually they're about okay. an hour long. And, and it's just to, to educate the, the, the medical staff uh, on, on particular subjects. And this one focused on obesity, but they went into low-carbohydrate diets. And, and, and specifically, they mentioned Atkins, because this was back around, I, I just rounded off at 2000, 2001. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, and, and they talked about the Native American population here in the States, that had been devastated by the Western diet once mm-hmm. they had been placed on reservations. And, and, and they mentioned that the average age of a Lakota woman, average lifespan was like 54 years because they were, they were all obese. They all had serious cardiovascular disease, which we now know is related to, to carbohydrate intake. And, and which was co- quite the contrary to what their natural state was when they could only eat real food and they could only eat grains and fruits in season. Mm. Um, so that, that impacted me because I have a significant family history of cardiovascular disease. And when I was going in for my, 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 my annual checkups, my cholesterol started going up a little bit because I've been a lifelong exercise nut. Um, I felt like that's all I had to do, you know, to, 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 to maintain my health, but because of other grand rounds where I was going in and, 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 and to cardiovascular grand rounds and listening to their presentations on, on lipids and, and cardiovascular disease, I realized that, well, you can't control, you're not going to control your, your cardiovascular risk factors by exercise alone. That's not going to work. 
And, and that, that made me decide to try low carb, a low carb diet, because I believe one of the things that they did mention, okay, because we didn't know nearly as much then as we do now about doing a low carbohydrate lifestyle. They, they did mention as seeing improvement, particularly in the lipid numbers. There was really no mention of diabetes or treating diabetes that way. In fact, mo most physicians wouldn't talk about it. And I had people poo-poo me about one well, physicians, not a kill you. You'll, you'll have, we, we've all heard this now. You, you, yeah. you, you had, you'll get kidney failure. You do this, the other. So, but I, but I decided I was going to, I was going to try it at that point. And, and just for some reference, um, my, my family physician had started me on Lipitor and I was only like, you know, I was maybe 45 years old or so. Mm -hmm. And my cholesterol had gotten to 204, my total. I don't even remember what my other numbers were. And I went on the Lipitor and I, and my, my total cholesterol went to 185 and we're talking about the, the, the units we use here in the States. And yep. So mine went to 185 and, and then I went on the low carb diet when my triglycerides were high as well. Now we, we know now, and I should have known because my interest in undergrad school was biochemistry. I used to know all the biochemical pathways, but that was long gone several years into medical school. So, or this was after I finished my residency. So uh, I, I, I went on the low carb diet and it dropped my cholesterol to, to into the one thirties. Okay. Um, so it did, it did a much better job than the Lipitor did. And then not only that, my triglycerides, which had been at 300 and they've been at 300 because, you know, when I'd sit and study and stuff, I'd eat candy, yeah. you know, uh, I'd put sugar in my coffee, you know, crazy stuff like that. You know, I'd, and, and luckily I wasn't big and heavy because I worked out all the time. But metabolically, I was a train wreck. I was becoming a train wreck. Yeah. So I saw my triglyceride come down. I saw my 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 uh, total cholesterol come came down. My LDL down below a hundred. As we know now, that probably um, because a lot of a lot of the a lot of the presenters I've seen on your broadcast, like Dr. Tim Noakes and and uh, Dr. Gary Fetke and and we now know that that that, that fat and 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 Cholesterol numbers in and of themselves probably are not predictive at all of cardiovascular disease, yeah. insulin resistance and sugar are. So anyway, that's, that's what got me started. So, so I, I, I started yeah, again about 20, 20 years ago. So and, oh, just, just from that talk is made yes. you decide that you're, you're going to try it. That was quite brave of you, wasn't it at that time? It, it, it was, but, but again, going back to, I went home and I still had my old, my old Leninger biochemistry book. And I used to get these big like poster board and I would draw out the chemical pathways on there, the biochemical pathways. And I can't even remember those now. Don't ask me to draw any carbon and hydrogen and you know, uh, the, the little stick diagrams. But I went back and looked at them then and you could see and looked at the pathways and I thought, what, what in the hell is wrong with us? These were worked out probably, I'm not sure how long ago they worked out some of these pathways, but a lot of them have been worked out from my understanding in the fifties or sixties. So we already knew that we mm -hmm. knew what happened to sugar when you ate it, you know, yeah. and we knew, we knew about sugar and fat and, and protein metabolism, but we weren't applying it. So that gave me a little bit of courage to try it. And, and, and I did, and, and except for that little bit of a hangover you get for that first week, which was tough when I was running, I felt great. Yeah. So, um, you said your number, your cholesterol numbers came down and you're very lucky because mine have gone up, but what other benefits did you notice? 
Well, what, what's interesting is that, um, uh, you know, I mentioned uh, in, in my, my, the, the pre-show a uh, little bit of a discussion we had that I, 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 stay, I stay very active and I, I play senior softball. And now this would have been back when I was in my 40s. They call it master's level at that level. It's not until you get over 50, they call you senior. But anyway, there was a guy on the team and he's probably the first guy I met who said he was, he was going low carb. Now, this fellow was, uh, I don't know what his, I don't know what his degree was in, but he worked for Indiana University. He was kind of a researcher. So he had, he had, he had science and, and medical background. And I remember saying to him, is that, he went by his initials, RT. I said, RT, you sure you should be doing that? Uh, you know, while you're trying to play ball, whatever. And he said, oh, it doesn't bother me. Okay. So when I did it, I noticed my endurance got better immediately. Now, I'm, you know, in, in a study, they say N equals one, you know, so is that just, was that placebo with me or whatever? But now almost 20 years later at my age, I'm 68, I'm still playing. I don't get tired. Now, part of that's genetic because I, I was always able to just go and go and go and go, go. I'm not big and strong or anything, but I can run, you know, yeah. and, and, and so, um, but I, but I'm, I mean, you know, I run for other guys now and I play every inning and I play outfield and, and my, I, my endurance, I think is better. Now, what's interesting, let me think of who Dr. Uh, is it Dr. Paul Mason? I saw, I, I watch, I watch, you, you watch all these medical lectures now on YouTube, which is great. He, he showed a couple of papers where they looked at people who were keto adapted and, and endurance. Hmm. And they do do better. And if you think about it, you're burning, you get nine grams, uh, or, or nine, you get you get nine calories per gram of fat. You only get four from protein and 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 sugar. And and we now know from Dr. Tim Noakes' work that you don't you, you know carb loading doesn't really work mm. if you go past four or five kilometers. You know it just doesn't work. And so that's that's something I definitely noticed that in my in my daily exercise, you know, because I bought weather's okay. I'm biking every day or, or, you know, uh, playing ball. I, I, I noticed at least in my case, a definite improvement in, in my endurance. And, uh, but I think there, there, there are studies now to show that that's the case. Yeah. And, and so that's, if, if someone is afraid to try it because they're into athletics, um, or whatever, running or, or walking or whatever it is, and they think it's going to affect them, I would say, I think you'll see just the opposite. And I think the data is there now to prove that that's not just something I, I, I observed. We've seen yeah. that in other people. I think you just have to allow some time for that adaptation to switch over. And it might be weeks. It might be months if you're doing a very high performance sport. Yeah. Well, you're, yeah, that's exactly what the, the, the studies he showed. That's exactly what they showed that it, yeah, it can take weeks or months to get to that point, but if you're not doing real endurance stuff, there's no need to get there in a hurry anyway. Yeah. You know, you're just, yeah, you just want to stay healthy. Absolutely. So tell us a little bit about your career in the medical profession. Well, I'm a, I'm a colorectal surgeon. Um, and, and so I did a five-year general surgery residency at Michigan State. And then I did a year of colorectal surgery at, at uh, a place called Ferguson Hospital, Ferguson Clinic, which at the time was the only freestanding colorectal hospital in the States. You know, we had St. Mark's in, in London, famous colorectal hospital, but oh, we only yeah. had one in the States. Now it's now been absorbed by, uh, by Michigan State. And so I did, a, I did a year of colorectal surgery. So my practice involved uh, doing colorectal surgery for 30, I can't, you know, I, I'm 
kind of, I'm, I'm retired from actually actively seeing patients. I still work for our group as a consultant and I help our nurse practitioners and such, but I was doing colorectal surgery for, for 32, 33 years, which meant I probably have done 60,000 colonoscopies because colonoscopy, colon cancer screening is a really big part of our practice. Um, you know, it, it, this, this kind of goes to what we, what we're starting to see now, uh, unfortunately with just a few providers, but in medicine, we're rather than waiting to treat the disease like diabetes, mm-hmm. you, you work on preventing it. Well, colon cancer is, is, is largely preventable if we do colon cancer screening and remove polyps before they become cancers, because the, the vast majority, you know, uh, of colon cancers can be prevented if people have colonoscopies and have polyp removal. Uh, uh, so that's, that was a big part of our practice is doing screening. But then of course, we also did the surgery for patients with colon cancer. We did, uh, we took care of patients with inflammatory bowel disease, both, both, uh, you know, ulcerative colitis and Crohn's, uh, we, we did both now. Now I like to do a lot of the medical management. Uh, some of my partners, not so much, you know, they would lead the medical management to the, the gastroenterologists who take, who, who also do colonoscopy and do upper endoscopies but they also, uh, they do the medical management of, of uh, GI disease. But I, I always enjoyed doing some of the medical management as well. And I, I never did get into giving them the monoclonal antibody therapy. I let the GI physicians do that. But managing some of the other, um, over not over the counter, but some of the oral medications, um, I, I would do that in trying to help them manage their disease. And then we, and then we take care of, uh, of anorectal diseases. Uh, you know, you, it, it used to drive me crazy where I'd see the comedians on TV. They would talk about seeing their proctologist. And at least in the States, I don't know that there are proctologists anymore. There used to be a, there used to be a specialty that was proctology and that, and those were physicians who had spent one or two years just doing training on taking care of anorectal diseases. In other words, hemorrhoid problems and anal fissures and paritis and abscesses and fistula, but we, so we, we took care of, we took care of anorectal disease as well. So that's, that's what I did for, for, um, for, for 32, 33 years. Did you see an increase in colorectal cancer over the years, over the decades? Well, we, what's interesting is with, with, with really pushing screening colonoscopy, we have, we, we were seeing a slight decrease. We, we had seen a slight decrease in colorectal cancer over the last couple of decades but it's directly related to the screening um, because we really, you know, we really haven't, because, because we, we were teaching that red meat was bad and that fat was bad mm. uh, and that those, and that those increase your risk of colorectal cancer. And there's no scientific data that shows that that's true. In fact, I just got, I can't think of the, the fellow has a, he has a, a Polish surname, but he's Australian. I just watched him give a lecture on red meat and there's that there's absolutely no data that red meat increases your risk of, of colorectal cancer. So uh, I've been pushing on my patients. It doesn't work for very many people for years. Cut your carbs out, cut the carbs out. So I, we, we don't know what effect that might have if we do that, if we can do that on a, on a, on a, a national and certainly a worldwide basis. Uh, we don't know what effect that will have, but we, we, we had seen that we'd seen a decreasing incidence of colon cancer, but it's because of the screening, because luckily enough for colon cancer, a little difference in some diseases, you, you, in the vast majority, 99.9% of cases, the person develops a polyp first. that takes a number of years to become cancerous, but the polyps abnormal, that's an abnormal growth. And, and 
and we feel like, and again, we don't have data to show this yet. If we could get people to reduce their carbohydrate, you're going to re- you're going to reduce the development of polyps. Mm. Those are abnormal cells. Those are cells that are probably already. And again, I don't know this for sure, but my hypothesis is they're in the process of changing their 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 uh, energy production in the mitochondria. And when they get to a certain point, then they're they're full full fledged cancer cells. And and then so. And here's the thing: we know once a person has developed a polyp, so so I have kind of a theory that uh, so so there's definitely a, like with everything a, a hereditary predisposition, and we know if you have a first degree family member or two second degree family members who have had a polyp or cancer, it increases your risk of developing polyps and cancers. The overall risk in Western in in, in Western Europe and the United States of developing a polyp is about thirty percent by the time you're age fifty to sixty. Um, some of that may be genetic. We just I don't we don't know yet the influence of of diet because we've been telling people that red meat and fat are bad and increase your risk when we know that doesn't now. Yeah. You know it just doesn't. Uh, you know what, you, you know, what's common. And this is what was great about the lecture. So, you know, the one thing that's common in people, cause they, and, and when you do these epidemiologic studies there, it, he makes the point, you can see, you can see uh, correlation, but you can't make a debt. You can't, you can't ascribe causality. Did it cause this? And he pointed out that when you look at the relative risk increase, it's, it's nothing. It's, it's like 1.18 or whatever for red meat in these populations. But he said, here's, here's what we don't know about them. We don't know what their carbohydrate intake is. We know they're not on low carb diets, yeah. And we don't know which ones are smoke. Well, that we are smokers, yeah. yeah. And so, and so he says it's interesting. We completely ignore the the influence that carbohydrate could have, while we want to blame it on red meat or we want to blame it on fat. Yeah. And 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 you know, in the Women's Health Initiative that was done here, and I think concluded in two thousand five or two thousand seven, Dr. Tim Noakes has talked about this a lot. If you look at the women who are on a low fat diet versus eat whatever you want. And you got to remember now in this country, at least low fat was already, they, they started, they started pushing that in the 1960s. Yeah. So even the women who were told they could eat what they want. I mean, when they everywhere, anything you pick up off the shelf said low fat, low fat, low fat, but they were told to eat what you want. And the women in the low fat group had a higher incidence of breast cancer and colon cancer. Mm. They had a lower incidence of breast and colon cancer in the group that ate what they wanted. So there's, there's, there's just, you know, so I was always telling my patients, eat what you want. Don't, I, don't eat what you want. Keep your carbs down, you, you know, and, and the problem, and you guys are probably more aware of this than I am. Very few people pay attention to you. Mm. They just don't pay attention. And yeah. they're so, you know, like in my own family you know, uh, uh, as, as an example, you know, it's like my, my, my sister-in-law, Billy, well, she won't eat, you know, uh, she won't, she, she, she keeps her meat to a minimum. She eats fish and she eats all these grains, you know, if it says whole grain, oh, whole, you know, whole says, healthy grain. Yeah. 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 And I keep telling her, I said, Billy, but you know, she's 74 years old. She's, she, I don't know that I'm going to get her to change, you know, and I've, I've sat down with her and watched some of the documentaries that you can pull up on Amazon and Netflix. And I think she, she's, you know, she's set in her ways. She just yeah. did. And I think as people get older, they sort of think, well, I haven't got that long left. Why worry yeah. about it? Um, I know if my mum was to pop off, pop her clogs tomorrow, yeah, she 
she won't, she doesn't care. She, she's, you know, she's lived, she feels like she's lived her life. She's had a good time. Uh-huh. And if it's her time to go, she'll go. She does. She, she won't mourn that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think maybe as you get towards that age, you start to think differently, I, I suppose. But well, um, I may be close to your mom's age. I'm 68. My wife's 68. She and I are planning on living to 100. You're in the and middle. You're in the middle of her and middle. me. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, but no, I think that's very true. There's no question about that. And, 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 and some of that, I think, could potentially go to quality of life in some people, you know, because there's a difference between living to be old and being healthy and older. And, and you know, I mean... I, I was, um, you know, I, I rode my bike 10 miles yesterday and I stopped at a soccer field, ran sprints so I could stay in shape for softball. I don't know that many people, that most people 68 do that. I know guys I play with do, but we're definitely in the minority. Yeah. But I, I mean, I hope that's something that as, year, as the years go by, we can convince the general public of it's, it's not just important to live long but to live well, to live healthy. And I think that's what you can bring to your life if we can convince people of doing that. But you're right. It, some people are, hey, I'm comfortable. I've lived a good life, you know, and, and that's okay. Yeah. You know, it's, 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 it's a choice that we all get to make. Yeah. And, and I'm lucky that she is healthy and she is mostly low carb. Um, she doesn't do any exercise, which is always a bone of contention with her yeah, and I. Yeah. The two things I'm always going on about is, you need to move more and you need to eat more protein, protein, yeah. protein. You need protein. But she she's not that keen on she's not that keen on meat, So she doesn't eat yeah. enough protein. And I'm always going on about that to her. So I do nag her a bit, but not yeah. too much. But, you know, within <laughs> herself, she's quite healthy. Yeah. So um, but I think that is really important that we have a quality of life that it doesn't matter how long you live, but it's how you live in that time that you're living because right. if you live an extra 10 years but those 10 years are spent in a home um or a care home and just sitting in a chair watching television and listening to other people shouting around you and you know that's that's no quality of life right. that's not yeah. enjoying yeah. your life is it no exactly i i subscribe to doctor are you familiar with dr peter atia yes yeah yeah so i i listen to him a lot uh you know, being just being working just part time really allows me a lot of time to just I love to I, I learn better listening to a lecture sometimes than reading. And yeah, he he makes that point that, yeah, it, what we can improve on is is we don't want to just you know, improve on the length of our life, but the, but the, the 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 quality of our life. And 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 if you look at the things that uh, he, he does this thing and I'll probably get it wrong. So don't don't blame this on him. But. He, he looks at like, you know, the, the causes of death and, and, you know, at least in Western society, it's cardiovascular, mm-hmm. you know, it's heart disease and stroke, it's cancer. Um, and, and, and then it's, uh, um, dementia. Okay. Or, or, or cognitive, uh, impairment. And then, so I think I saw him do it where he, he draws like a little pedestal and those things are on there. Then at the bottom is sugar and insulin resistance. And that's what supports all three of those. That's what causes, if you want to call it, all three of those of, of, of those causes of death. You know, now we're excluding accidents, you know, trauma and, and that kind of thing um, and, and, and diseases uh, or, or infectious diseases. But th- those are the big causes of death. But not only do they kill you, they really 
they really impair your quality of life. They really do. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and your, your lifespan, you can see the deterioration over time. Um, yeah. Whereas I don't know about you, but I would think, you know, we are living and then the idea is you just fall off the cliff at the end. Yeah. Sit down in your chair, I have an go to sleep. Or, I have an interesting story about that. I, I went to an American college, American cancer society. It was a fundraiser and it was like a silent auction and a dinner. And afterwards, a few of us went out for some drinks, um, you know, several of the couples. And, and I was, I was a fairly, I was only maybe 35 years old at the time. And one, and I'm not a golfer, you know, in the States got everybody golfs. And if, and if you're a doctor, they think, Oh, you golf, you know, I, I've never been a golfer. I, I always said I would, I, I would rather have somebody else chase my ball. That's what we say about, you know, cause we hit the ball and other people have to chase and when you play ball, when you play baseball or softball. But this one of the wives asked me, well, well, Jim, what do you do for hobbies? And I said, and I am, I love to read. I said, well, I, I read and I, you know, I, I, I run and I play softball. And she gave me a dirty look about the softball. Mm-hmm. It was almost like she, she, like that was beneath me as a doctor. I shouldn't do that. And I don't know why, but she did. And, and her name was Laura. I remember her name was Laura. And I said, well, Laura, what would you have me do? Just go to work every day? come home and sit on the couch and wait to die. I'm not going to do that. And I've always remembered that conversation because mm. I've kind of tried to live my life that way. I, I mean, we, I, we are lucky to live when we do and to know the things we do and to, I mean, I think, I think, you know, I'm, I God, I'm blessed every day that I grew up in an era where we have modern medicine, where I could get an education and, and be able to teach myself and teach other people uh, uh, how to be healthier. You know, I mean, that's, we live in a fantastic time. Yeah. So how, how did you, did you manage to incorporate low carb into your practice? Um, and the practice where you worked, how accepted was that? Uh, not because (laughs) my, okay. I have a, I have a partner, great guy. His name is Dr. Santiago Arafat. He's interesting history for him too. He was born in Spain and moved to New York when he was two years old. So anyway, but he is a great guy, a really good surgeon, just wonderful person. Um, I have another partner, Dr. Dean Smith, who's the same way. He's from, he's from Pennsylvania. Went to, I think he went to Penn state for medical school and Dr. Heather Matheson. She's from, we tease about this because Indiana, Kentucky have a rivalry. She went to UK, but um, yeah, the, the three of them are not going to go long. In fact, Dr. Arafat eats very, what he considers very healthy, lots of grains. Well, he's almost vegetarian. He calls himself vegan. And I go in all the time and I pick up his little things of food. He won't, he doesn't mind me telling the story because we laugh about it. And I'll pick up this box of whole wheat crackers or something that he's having tuna on. Okay. He's having something healthy on that. And I'll circle, I'll take my little yellow marker and, I'll, marker and I'll circle how many carbs there are in, a, in a, like 24 grams of carbohydrate and say, Biago, that's killing you, you know, you know. So yeah, it's, 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 it's difficult. I, I could tell my own patients and I preach it to everybody I see, you know, uh, lower your sugars. In some of my YouTube stuff, I said, when I, when I talk to people, I say, lower your carbohydrates, do some exercise every day. Um, but it, it's tough. And I'm sure you guys have found that too. I mean, you guys are educating many, many more people than I do. Um, but it's, it's, it's tough to get people to do that. You know, they, they're, they're comfortable with their way of life and it does require some discipline to make that, to make that, that switch. 
you know, and, and when I listened to, to your podcast morning and you two were talking about transition. Yeah, I get that. That's, you know, you, you've got to be, you've got to stay focused at, at times. Yeah. Yeah. Because the, the easy option is to do what everyone else is doing. Yeah. And yeah. That, that is generally extremely high carb. Oh, and, 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 you know, now what's interesting is I had, I've had two converts at my office. Um, uh, we have one of the, one of our nurses and her husband, and I'm guessing they're probably, they're probably mid forties. He developed diabetes and she knew I was on a low carb diet and she asked me about it. And I said, here, here's some sources to go to. And I just, I checked back in with her all a couple of weeks ago. I said, Jinky has your, has your, uh, her name, their name's Jinky Mokia. They're originally from the, from the Philippines. And I said, Jinky, how's your husband doing? He's lost 35 pounds. Wow. He off his, in, he, he wasn't on insulin. I think he was on metformin. He's off his medicine. And I, I mean, and that makes you feel good. And that, that's, you know, it's one of those things you just have to keep, you keep preaching to people, but, but, but it's those, it's those successes. And so she, she, she went low carb too, you know, because it's easier to do it as a couple. Absolutely. You know, um, so, um, uh, but yeah, it, it's tough. So, I'm, you know, I, and I'm, I go, I go in sometimes like in the, the break room we have, if somebody's having a birthday, it's a special day or whatever, you walk in there and there's nothing but pastries on that table. That's, there's cookies and cakes and donuts. And I go in there and take a picture and then I'll tease them. I'll say, you know, that stuff's killing you. And yeah. Uh, yeah and, and, and you just, you know, you hope, you hope you get somebody to do it. You know, I, I think some patients, because I would tell them, you know, after their colon cancer surgery, even going into it, even before, I, 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 I would talk to them about that. And uh, some do, because, you know, that's a big life changing uh, incident for them. You, you know, first of all, they've had to have a surgery. Now, granted, the last 10 years of my practice, we were doing most of them minimally invasive, you know, just three tiny laparoscopic ports, but it's still a big surgery. You know, and you're faced with something that's that's a that's a life threatening disease, depending upon your stage. And a lot of those people, you could get to, you could get them to, uh, um, you could get them to make a change. And and um, you know, because 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 uh, you know, one of the interesting things that we we now know about cancer, and and as I've said many times, I slapped myself in the head when I first started listening to some of the lectures about this, like Dr. Don Lemain at Stanford. Uh, God, I got to think of some of the other. Uh, People I've, uh, oh, I can't think of the fellow's name. He is, he is from uh, University of Pittsburgh. You know, they've been, they've been doing studies uh, on, on reducing carbohydrate intake in cancer patients. And it's, it's, a, it's of a definite benefit. So uh, that I've recommended that to my patients now for, for several years, go low carb. And I've talked to the oncologists about it because they're the ones you know, if I have a patient who has what we call stage three or stage four disease, where they where they will get chemo for a certain period of time after surgery, uh, what what a lot of these studies are showing now is that because the mitochondria, which is like the little the little engine in the, in our cell, yeah. they most most if not all solid tumor cancer cells can only burn glucose and glutamine, but glucose is the is the major source. And what made me bat myself in the head was okay, I've been ordering PET CT scans on people for years, both as a pre-op evaluation to see if they had metastatic colon cancer and then post-op to follow them. And that's based on glucose. We take sugar, 
and we tag it with with a radionucleotide and you give it, I don't do it, the radiologist does this, but we, we, we give them that and the cancer cells suck up the glucose because that's all they can metabolize. Yep. And so we're now using that, using that knowledge to treat people. And I've got several of the oncologists in Evansville and they know the data too. So, so they're encouraging their people to go on low carb. A lot of people won't go on low carb, but if they can't get them to do that, if you can get them to fast for 12 to 13 hours before their chemo, the chemo is much more effective. Yep. Uh, and you, you, you may be aware of that. It's, it's, it's much more effective and, and, it, and it's much less toxic to the patient. So you can give less chemo. And um, I know Dr. Uh, uh, Lemayne, I hope I'm pronouncing her, her, her name right. I, I know that in, in, in the studies that they're doing on breast cancer, they're, they're, they still are treating their patients with uh, tamoxifen and radiation, but they're having one group fast and they're having the other group uh, just eat normally. And, and, and they're, they're, they're seeing much better results than the people that are fasting. Wow. And, and so I, I think we're going to see that. And we've seen that, I believe, with its astroglioblastoma uh, brain tumors that were not very, uh, you know, not, not very affected at all by any treatment we were doing. And, and so um, I think we're, we're seeing that as a new therapy. And, and what's interesting is, is the Soviets, after World War II, they did a lot of fasting therapy. They did it for everything. And they could put people in a sanitarium and then they could control their diet. And, and after the fall of the Berlin wall, when, when, when researchers actually got a chance to look at the data, they found there were a number of things that actually improved with, with fasting. Well, we know about diabetes, you know, but, but, but they also found that cancer patients, they, they had a better, they had a better prognosis. It didn't mean they were necessarily, uh, they had better quality of life. Didn't necessarily mean they were cured but they had their symptoms were lessened and they, and they live longer. And so that's what we're seeing now in some of the ongoing studies looking at cancer treatment. Yeah. Yeah. So if you had people that were coming to you with colorectal cancer and you were advising them to go lower carb of, of those people that you mentioned it to, what, what proportion do you reckon took you up on that offer? I'm guessing maybe only five or 10%. And that's just purely a guess because I didn't do any, you know, I didn't do any studies where I had them come back in and, you know, they come in, how you doing? What are you eating? You know, and, and you never know if what they tell you, they may tell you what you want to hear, you know, so yeah, that's, true. that's, that's why studies like that, when you see these epidemiologic studies looking at it diet, you know, whether it be olive oil or, you know, the Mediterranean diet, or you, you, you don't, you don't know because they're, they're really, they're doing a journal. They're, they're, they're keeping track that way. I just would encourage it. I, I'm sure some people did, you know, because I would see people who not only were they, I, did I feel like they were telling me the truth, they were exercising. Um, and you know, what's interesting is in the, in, in my period of time in surgery, when I, when I started medical school in 1980, not 19, 1976, but when I started my general surgery residency in 80, 1980, we made people stay in bed. Yeah. You know, we were just transitioning from that era of, of, you know, they didn't let people do anything to where I told them to do whatever you're comfortable with. You know, I, I had a fellow one time who was 75 years old and, and, he, and he had a colon cancer operation and, uh, and he rode his bike every day. Now, this has been back oh, 25 years or so ago. And it just so happened at lunch back then, there was a partner in my office 
and I would go run at lunchtime if I had time. So when this guy, when, when he was getting ready to be discharged from high school, I said, Hey doc, he said, now, when can I start riding my bike? And his wife immediately piped up and said, you tell him he can't ride his bike. And I said, well, I can't tell him that. I, and I, and I, you know, I was supposed to say his name was Oscar. I said, now, Oscar, I, I, how heavy is your bike? And it was one of the, you know, lightweight, even 25 years ago, fairly lightweight bike. And, and I said, I don't want you doing any real heavy lifting or straining over about 20 pounds because you, you get a hernia incision site. But if, if, you know, if you're just getting on the bike and you're riding, you know, level ground, I said, you go ahead and ride, you know, because, because I was telling everybody to start and people who were not. And, and well, anyway, about a week after he was discharged, I'm over there running at lunch and he comes to and by on his bicycle. I had, I had probably seen him out there many times, but didn't know him before I told him as a patient. And he hollers at me from a distance. Hey, doc, how you doing? And, and I was so proud of him seeing him out there riding that bicycle already, just literally about two weeks after his surgery. Yeah. So, so some people, yeah, some people do, they, 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 you know, they, they, they take it to heart and, and, but you know, as you know, it, it's tough because it's ingrained, it's been ingrained in us certainly since, you know, Ansel Keys in 1960, the pathologist from university of Minnesota that first advocated a low fat diet, uh, you know, the fat came out of everything. That was the demon and we, and, and, and sugar went into replaced, everything. Yeah. Replaced with sugar. Yeah. yeah. So what does your daily diet look like nowadays? Uh, you know, I thought you might ask me about that. And I listened to you guys talk quite a bit and preparing your food or whatever. And um, so maybe just give you part of this is probably just my mentality. And part of it is just when I started, there was not, you know, uh, uh, and, I, and I, I'm not much of a cook. And my wife at the time, oh, that she loved her pastries, you know, um, so I, I, I've never, I've never counted calories. I've only counted carbs. So when I started and I've changed through the years now. So when I started, I would just, I was making sure I was eating meat. I mean, I remember my first meal because I thought this is blasphemy. I got up on a Saturday morning. I'm starting on a Saturday morning and I had sausage and bacon and eggs. And I looked at that and okay, you know how my, my brain was fixated for all the years of training. Oh, this no is right. I can't eat this stuff. And I had that that day and I've, and I've pretty much stuck with it ever since. Not, not that thing. So I've just, I've, I, I, this morning I, I, I made about a quarter pound of sausage and I threw some cheese in with it. I made like a scramble and I, and I cracked a couple of eggs and threw it on at the end. And that's what I ate. And, but, but when, when some of the low carb breads and keto bread came out, uh, I would take a, you know, you couldn't get anything to eat in the, in the, in the cafeterias. So when I would, when I would go to work, I took, I took my lunch every day and yeah. I would take, I would take cheese and just maybe meat, just cold cuts, uh, cheese, uh, uh, meat. Um, you know, I, I, I really, uh, really reduced my grains. And, and, uh, I've, I've never been a huge fish eater. I like shrimp. I like certain fish. So I, I've, I've been bad about that, but I I'm just eating meat, cheese and eggs. You yeah. know, that's, that's what I eat. And, and like when I'm going to, when I'm playing ball, what I will typically do a lot. Okay. Some, some, a lot of the hotels where we stay, they, they're going to have a little buffet Well, you can almost always get eggs. You can, you're going to almost always have sausage or bacon. So I have that. And then I take the low carb protein shakes that you can get that premier protein makes them Atkins makes them now. And I will have one of those in the morning. And then that's all I have all day until we get finished playing. And, yeah. I, and I try to get the extra protein then 
because you know your 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 body can metabolize the protein a little better to 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 make the glucose that you do need. Yeah. You know you do, you do yeah. So that so that's and then you I heard I heard you talking before about protein and it's like my my wife does more Betsy does more she tries to get a little more protein than I do although I get much well so I kind of got off subject I will eat I will eat broccoli and and cauliflower I'll eat I'll eat green vegetables so I that's what I have my meal no potatoes no rice the 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 biggest thing was the thing was toughest for me to give up was rice and fried rice because I absolutely loved that I'd go to the Japanese steak place oh my god but I I just didn't once I made the switch, I didn't have any, I didn't have any problem. Um, I didn't have, I just didn't have any problem with not having that. And, and again, listening to Dr. Savis, uh, uh, you know, he talks about carb addiction and I know that's true because I know one of my daughters is like that. She just, you know, and I, 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 I never had any trouble with that, but I, you know, so Betsy and I have expanded our diet. We, we've got a pressure cooker. We like to just get the cheapest meat we can get and throw that in and we'll throw Brussels sprouts in with it and, and, and cauliflower and, and some, some wine and a beer and seasonings and, 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 you know, you pressure cook that and it just makes a, a great stew. We, we can eat on that for dinner until it's gone for three or four days. Yeah. So yeah, I've just pretty much stuck with, with, uh, I've just stuck with, with, you know, with, with meat, you know, meat, fish, uh, I, I consider fish meat, but, but meat, eggs, uh, and, and dairy stuff. Um, and, uh, and then, and then, you know, um, basically green vegetables. Yeah. I, I quit eating fruits and, and I'll tell you how sick I was. Okay. I thought I didn't, I've never been a big soft drink person. I drank soft drinks when I was a kid. Um, but I kind of, you know, my family was not, not, we didn't, well, my mother ended up, she was not a high school graduate, but she, got her GED and she went back to college and got a master's. She ended up teaching school. But when I was younger, we didn't have a lot of money. We didn't buy soft drinks. Mm. We bought milk. <laughs> so, yeah. so we had milk, milk and cereal. But, it, but, but anyway, I, it, when I, when I, when I got into college medical school, I didn't drink much more soft drinks. I drank fruit juice because I thought, Hey, that's good for you. Yeah. Now I know Healthy. it was as bad as drinking a Coke, you know? So anyway. Yeah. And, but we all, we believe that we've believed oh, a lot yeah. of what we've been taught. And like you said, um, before we started recording is that you weren't taught at um, medical school, any nutritional advice. No, no, but even if you had been, you would have been told low fat, more vegetable, more vegetarian, all those sorts of things. We got the food pyramid. The, yeah. The healthy whole grains. Which reminds me, so I've been teaching a class to the second year medical students at IU because we have a regional campus down in Evansville. I've been doing that for 25 years or so. And for whatever reason, this year, I usually just taught colorectal, you know, colon cancer, GI bleeding, inflammatory bowel disease, that kind of stuff, uh, anorectal disease. But this year they assigned me uh, their their nutrition. And, and, and this, I don't know if they get any of this in any other year. It's two hours. They got a little two-hour nutrition class, so they keep a they keep a dietary log for themselves for a week or something like that, and they give them some reading material. and 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 to, and to the credit of the medical school, they they really emphasize to them take into account the patient's socioeconomic background. Don't assume that everybody has the same means and resources to be able to buy good food. 
And so, so I, I, I like that part of it, but they're still using the dietary, what they call it, dietary guidelines of adults or the USDA guidelines, you know, which is, which is 45 to 65% carbohydrate and, 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 you know, fruits and the whole fruits and vegetables thing. So, mm. so I told them when they asked me to teach that class, I said, I will do it. I said, but I don't know the old guidelines and nor am I going to learn them. I did. Cause you can pull up the pie charts. I, I've got, I've got my little, uh, yellow notepad that I carry to make notes on it's I've got stuck in there somewhere just so I can look and see what it what it is and so and when I told the uh when I when I told the uh the person who's in charge of the center I, I said I said I'm gonna I may do something a little bit controversial when I get in there she was all for it oh, and that's wow. what I talked to them about I talked to them about some of the things we're talking about right now about about the importance of of of, of lowering the carbohydrates in the entire population's diet and and how we can prevent disease by doing that. And, and I told them, go look at the data, just look at the data. I talked with them about the effects on cancer and cancer treatment um, and and, and diabetes. uh, And the fact that you don't have to cure diabetes if you prevent it. And and again, I've heard, I've heard multiple, uh, Oh, Dr. uh, uh, Graham, uh, that was on oh graham phillips graham phillips yes that that was great i love what he had to say about that yeah we we have and we've all been guilty of that you know it's like we would treat a disease when they had it rather than push prevention and you know there's a lot of stuff out there there's no money in prevention jim there's no Uh, money yeah, yeah i get it yeah yeah so you know the i think the pharmaceuticals companies want to make us well enough that we can carry on living and that's oh, not point. too well because we've we still need to need these drugs so that they yeah, can make yeah. their profits so keep us alive to keep consuming the the medic the medication but not too well that we don't need it at all yeah it's interesting that i was listening to someone's lecture and i don't remember who what it may have been dr steve finney and he was talking about the fact that before um before insulin, okay, we, we, we already knew that you could, you could, uh, I, I don't want to say you cure diabetes, but, but you, you prevent, you prevent the complications of diabetes by putting people on low carb diet. And then as soon as insulin came out, there was, there was the big impetus and I sort of get it. Well, Dr. Ian Lake, I think talked about this. Yeah. Yeah. That, okay, well now you can go ahead and tell and he's type one diabetic. Type one, yeah. Yeah. That, okay, well, well now you can just go ahead and eat like everybody else. Of course, everybody else is back in the 1930s. I don't, you know, I don't know that I don't think people ate like we do now. They didn't eat as much sugar, I, I would venture to guess. But well, yeah, you can just then you eat like everybody else. But you know, what we now know is, and I've been saying this for some time, and I'm sure other clinicians, because I don't treat diabetes. We're, we're not we're not treating their diabetes with insulin. We're treating their blood sugar. Yeah. Right. I mean, you've heard, I think Dr. Lake may have even talked about that. So we keep their blood sugar low enough that they don't, they don't develop, they don't die of, 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 a, of a, a hyperosmolar uh, a diabetic coma. Okay. That's, that's what we do, but the, the high glucose level and, 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 and even worse, we're making their insulin levels even higher because they're not a type one, they already have high insulin levels. And we know that that's an inflammatory and it's a growth factor. And that's probably what contributes. That's one of the things that contributes to the to cancer. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it's so it's, you've got the, the the environment of the sugar uh-huh. and the insulin that's creating the growth, 
you know, why wouldn't cancers proliferate? And they it do. Just, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, there's there's lots of cancers that feed on sugar. I'm not saying all of them, but there are lots that feed right, on sugar. Right. We, we so, know that, that, that there are eight, and I never can remember them, but the one breast. Type, yeah, breast, colorectal. Uh, I believe a pancreatic does, I know for, for sure. I think that prostate does. And I think maybe lung. I, I'm not positive about that. I mean, I would have to look it up. Uh, but, you know, the, 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 certainly two of the th three of the four big ones, because uh, lung and breast are the top two in, in women and lung and prostate are the top two in men. Colon cancer is third in both sexes. Um, so, you know, co colon cancer is the, the, the third leading cause of cancer, and it's the third leading cause of cancer deaths in the, in the country. Yeah. So I just wanted to touch on um, IBD. Is, um, so is IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, uh -huh. linked to, I mean, is there a link and... If you have IBS, what what were some of the things that you would recommend? Well, I, I don't know that there's a link between irritable bowel syndrome and irritable and, and inflammatory bowel disease. Now that said, I don't know what we're going to find in the future, and, and I'm not. I, I have. It's been a couple of years that um, I used to go to the Cleveland Clinic Colorectal Conference every year, and they always touched on both of these. So it, it we may at some point find that. Although we don't find any inflammation or, you know, any demonstrable pathology in irritable bowel, that maybe those symptoms are being caused by, you know, a sub, some, something subclinical or something that we just don't know about yet. Mm. But generally speaking, you know, and I've got uh, irritable bowel tends to run in families. Well, everything runs in families. And, and I have, you know, one of my daughters has irritable bowel and, and her mother had irritable bowel. Um, and, and, and so when, when we, when we evaluate people, when people come in with irritable bowel, of course, we're concerned about, okay, do they have inflammatory bowel disease or, you know, do they have, could they have cancer and not so much in the younger patients, but certainly older patients. So we do an evaluation to look for inflammation and look for a cancer. And, and if we don't find one, then we, we tend to, we tend to treat them. Uh, we'll, 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 we'll put them on fiber supplements because fiber tends because what's going on in irritable bowel is that they're, 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 they've got just over spasticity of their colon and sometimes even the small bowel. And, and so that can cause them. Most patients will get cramping and bloating and they'll get loose stool and people will feel bloated sometimes, even if they're not, because, your gut only it, your gut only senses pain when it's inflamed or when it's under tension. So if it's cramping, if it's squeezing real hard and it's under tension, that'll cause you to have cramp, make, make you feel bloated, even though if you measure your girth, it may be the same. So those are the symptoms people get. So we typically will treat people with fiber because it fiber decreases the pressure with which the colon, it stimulates the colon to squeeze normally to do its normal peristalsis. And it decreases the pressure at which it's got to push stuff through. Unfortunately, that doesn't work for everybody. Irritable bile is very, it's very frustrating. We will use antispasmodics like Levson and Bentol, and, and they're just antispasmodics. They slow the they slow the muscle contraction in the bowel. And sometimes those work. Um, there's so been I'm, I, just, I never oh, I'm just gonna stop you there. Cause when you say that you 
suggest for people to have fiber is that a dietary fiber or is it a medication no it's, um, it's just dietary just dietary fiber and, and, if, and in what form because if somebody says uh, i don't know what you have in america but here in the uk it's probably the same because it's kellogg's maybe not bran flakes which yeah, is now well we we tend to use in the states we use psyllium husk okay most of which i think is is is, is comes from india and so we have Metabucil and well, every drugstore chain has their own. So it's over the counter and it's the only fiber. It's the only it's, it's a soluble fiber. And it's it's the only fiber that increases the water content of the stool, because that's how fiber works. You know, it, it, it holds water in the stool. And it, it also uh, if, if you if you if you watch some of the experts on on uh, on, on lipid metabolism and trying to reduce your lipid numbers, if indeed they're even important, but they, but they, but they, 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 they have found that like psyllium will lower ApoB, which is one of the lipoproteins that carries fat, which is, 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 is probably a bad one. That's one that probably is related to, 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 uh, to atherosclerosis. So that psyllium fiber will help reduce that. So having that in the diet will help. And so do omega-3 fatty acids and so does olive oil. Uh, so psyllium is the only fiber of all the vegetable fibers that will that will reduce uh, it will in- increases the water content of the stool, and then in doing that it it, it lowers pressures that that are required to push it through. So that's what that's what I use most. So do I, you, stayed, would, I stayed away from the grain fibers. Yeah. Yeah. Like you, so would you? How much would you recommend? Because the other thing is, some people say they they change their way of eating, so they've gone moved to low carb or keto, whichever you know is their preference, and then yeah. they say they're having trouble with bowel movements. Now yeah, I'm sure yeah. that is just a change in the way that they're eating, but right. would you recommend or would you su- suggest that using psyllium at that point as well? Yes. In fact, I was using psyllium before because of my cholesterol. So I was already, I was already taking some a day because, you know, you get the sugar free, there's no calories in it. And, and, it, and, it, and it does, it binds, uh, it binds cholesterol and, and that's how it works. So you don't get return of some of the cholesterol via the, the gut liver, uh, you know, metabolism. Uh, it, it helps. So it helps you, it helps you get, and so you'll lower your cholesterol about oh, your total cholesterol about 10% if you're taking psyllium daily. So, so is that a, a teaspoon or in a yeah, glass of water? I, I would, I would tell people to take like a, a couple of teaspoons or a tablespoon a day, you know, and, and here's what I told now. So I was taking it not for constipation, although I was already on it before I started a little carb. So I don't know if I would have noticed the change or not, but I would always have my patients. And we always had them take it after surgery. Uh, like we did a bowel anastomosis, we want to bulk their stool up because part of what allows, you know, stretches the bowel and allows it to return to its normal function is having normal stool pass through. Um, So, uh, but, but for anorectal surgery, especially you don't want them constipated if you've just done some kind of surgery down there, you know, because that's terrible pain. It's like your feet, what your feet, your hands, your anal canal, uh, and your head and neck area are about the most sensitive areas in your body. So yeah, we would, we would have people use it for that. But I, uh, I, I encouraged, uh, I, I encourage most of my patients, I was encouraging to use psyllium and because I, I figured it's not going to hurt them. It may help them, but it, it, you know, for irritable bowel, you get some people where you just almost can't do anything for them, which makes me think that there's some underlying cause that we don't know about. You know, well, we don't know exactly what causes it. We think it has to do with with autonomic nervous system, you know, because we definitely know. And I used to always tell patients 
all of us, you know, our gut kind of controls us in more ways than one. And, and uh, you know, think about it. If you if you get a little bit excited or tense or nervous, it will affect your gut a little bit. I mean, it yeah. does that even for me and it does it for everybody. If you travel, most people, you get constipated. The most common scenario I would see for patients who came with an anal fissure, which is like a little crack or tear in the lining of their anal canal, they traveled or they'd been, they'd done something different. They, they maybe had been in a hospital for something and, and then they got constipated and they strained and they had a real hard stool and it caused no crack or tear. So, so lots of things affect your bowel pattern. And we do know one of the ways to differentiate between, let's say a cancer that maybe has caused a change in bowel pattern or inflammatory bowel disease, other than maybe having well, inflammatory bowel disease, quite often you're going to get bleeding. It's going to be more chronic um, and same maybe for, for colon cancers is that with irritable bowel, if most people will not wake up when they're sleeping, when they go to sleep, they don't, they don't get up. In fact, one of the things that people came in with changing their bowel pattern, I always ask, are you getting up at night? If they got up at night, that's a, that's an alarm bell for me. Okay. That's, Oh, oh I, I got to be more concerned that they have inflammatory bowel disease or that they have colon, that they have colon cancer or something else going on. Um, so, so irritable bowel, you know, uh, bulking agents, antispasmodic agents. Some docs have used the 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 SSRI, the 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 uh, uh, ser- the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, the antidepressant agents. Not because the patient's depressed, but they seem to affect the autonomic nervous system a little bit and help with their help help with the irritable bowel. I, I never use those that much. Um, I believe it or not, a lot of times. If you work a patient up, you do a colonoscopy and everything looks normal. And even if it looks normal, we biopsy them because something, and this goes again to to something that we've only learned in the last year, there's something called microscopic colitis and they're got two different forms. And so the bowel looks normal. There's no ulceration, no bleeding. Mucosa looks nice and pink, nice blood vessel pattern, but you do a biopsy and you find inflammatory cells under the lining. Mm. So not causing. So we always check for that anymore. So that's something you, that, that, that where people used to get diagnosis having irritable bowel, but we know it's 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 microscopic colitis, and it responds to some of the same things that that inflammatory bowel disease because it is a type of inflammation. It's just not involving the mucosa or the full thickness of the bowel wall, but it is causing them symptoms. So yeah, it wouldn't surprise me if we find other better explanations for irritable bowel. Yeah. But right now it's kind of. I like the term we use in medicines, idiopathic. It means we're idiots and we don't really know. We don't, we don't know. <laughs> yeah. The doctor doesn't know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so they just tell you it's idiopathic. Yeah. Yeah. So with inflammatory bowel disease, would people respond well by removing the grains and the seed oils that cause inflammation? I, I think yes. And the last couple of conferences that I went to where they discussed inflammatory bowel. And, and we're talking about a good conference, international conference, Cleveland Clinic has each year. Now, again, it's been about two years since I went, but we're seeing stuff in the colorectal surgery literature now as well. First of all, they were focusing on the microbiome. And, and I had a theory, and, and this may still apply, in addition to the whole grain theory as well. It's probably a complex issue. Crohn's disease was first described by one of the doctors name was Crohn. And, and so it got his name. There was also another investigator, but it's a longer name. They just dropped it. So it's Crohn's as they call it Crohn's disease. Um, okay. So, so Crohn's is, it, it was first described by one of the physicians name was Crohn's Crohn. 
in about 1932. Before that hadn't been described. I'm not so sure about ulcerative colitis, but now we have a pandemic of inflammatory bowel disease. In my mind, and this is just me thinking, I've not seen any studies to definitely show this, but I thought, okay, well, what happened around that time? Well, 1929, penicillin was discovered. And, and so what has happened since then? We've had an explosion of antibiotics and antibiotic therapy for people. Mm. And so I always thought that's got to have something to do with it. Yeah. That changes our microbiome. You know, even if you only have one dose and most people have multiple doses through their life. Now, knock on wood for me, I've only had antibiotics. I mean, handful of times, um, but some people are on them on a regular basis. So I, in my mind, I'm almost certain that has to be related to it. And, and especially then when I saw the research coming out that, that they're now, they're now relating, uh, they're now relating uh, inflammatory bowel disease to, to some type of changes in the microbiome. And, yeah. then, and there have been trials, there have been trials using probiotics to, to treat it. Now, we haven't found so far that using probiotics for inflammatory biologies seems to help. We're still stuck with using anti-inflammatory medications like the mesalamine preparations, uh, steroid preparations, and then the, the, the anti-tumor necrosis factor things like Remicade and, you know, uh, uh, Inflamab, you know, those things. Um, but that's what we're using those to treat the inflammation once they have it. So... I think there's probably a role of us changing the microbiome with our use of antibiotics. And, we, and one of the big things we took care of is colorectal surgeons. And we first question I asked people when they came in with diarrhea, have you been on an antibiotic recently? So we're not so concerned with infectious diseases anymore. And most of those, if you support the patient, they'll get over them anyway, whether you culture them or treat them or not. In fact, there's a little bit of a push now not to treat some of that stuff unless the patient's in trouble because you don't want to affect your microbiome. But, uh, uh, but that was one of the first patient questions we asked because C. clostridium difficile has become, you know, endemic. You know, any of us have been in a healthcare facility, probably carry it in our gut. And if you come off the good stuff in your gut, then it can overgrow and make you sick. Yeah. So we already have that issue. So, um, uh, you, you know, there's almost, I, I think there's almost no question that, that, that change our microbiome with antibiotics make, makes a difference. But again, getting back to using uh, um, probiotics, they do seem to work if, to, to help in the treatment of, of um, C. diff colitis. Okay, they, they seem to help with that. And in fact, we, we do fecal transplants now, which sounds very gross, but, but this, this hospitals now have all cultured normal stool and there's no poop in it anymore. It's just they've got the bacteria growing in a in a in a broth. And so if we if we have somebody that that has C. diff colitis that doesn't respond to flagell or or one of the other antibiotics we use, vancomycin, then we'll do that. And and you can do it. Uh, I had a nurse down here several years ago who's also a young lady who's also a cancer survivor, colon cancer patient. Uh, I had her just get some of her husband's stool and put it in a blender because I did. She in fact she was a GI nurse and blend it and give herself an enema with it and it got better. Oh. So we know that'll work. We know just putting normal bacteria back in the gut will, will, will help. And um, so I, I, you I know, hope she didn't use that blender afterwards. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> myself as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, so so I but, but now the, the, the latest thing that I'm, I'm reading a little bit about, and I'm not an expert on this at all, is they are looking at the proteins in, in grains and the high grain consumption has been going on for not that many years. You know, I mean, we didn't start having agricultural, uh, what would you call that? Uh, or, or, oh, what's the right type, not agricultural. 
almost mechanized farming. Uh, yeah, they combine harvesters. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a relatively new phenomenon in human existence, and so they're looking a lot at the at, at the various proteins that are present uh, in grains, and wondering if that's not some of the the cause of inflammatory bowel disease as well. Mm. And then, as we know, the, the, the grains are just you should, probably should only be eating them seasonally anyway. And they contain a lot of carbohydrate. Yeah. And Dr. William Davis, in his book, um, Grain. Oh, he's got the one. Uh, grain. Uh, wheat belly. Wheat belly. That's the one. Yeah, I'm yeah, saying grain yeah. belly. It's not wheat belly. He, yeah, was, yeah. he was saying how um, they've changed. They've modified the wheat since the oh, combine yeah. harvesters have come in to make it shorter and straighter. So the combine harvesters can... Um, harvest the wheat right right and and that change what they the way they've changed it is what really irritates our guts at the moment yeah yeah and that i don't know enough about it i've i've heard him speak as well in fact i think i've got his book i haven't read it yet <laughs> i got dr fenny's book and um anyway yeah so before we finish is there anything else that you would have liked to tell our listeners that you haven't already mentioned yeah uh, i if there is, I can't think of it. Let me put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> We've talked about a lot. I told you it's hard to shut me up. And you yeah. No, it's good. I, I have less work to do when you keep talking. <laughs> <laughs> so how can people get in contact with you if, if they want to? What? Uh, well, they could go. We have a, we have a website. It's, it's easy. It's colondocs.net, all lowercase letters, colondocs.net. Uh, we have a YouTube channel and I don't know how I got this name, but I did It's tri-state colorectal surgery. Okay. Uh, so that's, that's it. We've got a YouTube channel and I put, I put, I put a lot of info, informational videos on there. Uh, and, 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 uh, and I also put a lot of written, uh, information about various colorectal issues on, on the website as well. Um, and then we have a Facebook page and, uh, it's, it's just tri-state colorectal surgeons is the Facebook page. So they can get a hold of us that way. Um, you know, phone, there's, there are phone numbers there. If I, I don't know that I want to put my phone number out <laughs> on the, on the web, but if someone called the office, they would certainly get my, they would get, they would get my number to them or, or they would get their number to me so that I could call them. And I actually do that quite a bit. I mean, I'm notorious in, in my hometown because, you know, I've lived there most of my life. I, I, I went to, to grade school and high school and I actually went to college there. University of Southern Indiana is in, is in Evansville. Um, and then I was gone for like 10 years or so going to medical school and doing my surgery training. But then I came back to Evansville, which was uh, for me, was the best thing I could have ever done, you know, because I, I wouldn't know my, know my wife. I wouldn't have my wife now had that not happened. But but for many, many, many uh, other reasons. But one of them is and my staff teases me because my other three partners are not from Evansville and, 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 uh, our practice administrator that I know everybody in town and I really don't, but enough people know me, they know how to get a hold of me. And so they'll either call the office or they'll call somebody they know that knows me and get my number. And I enjoy, I enjoy talking to people. So, um, yeah, if somebody, if somebody, I may, if I can't answer your question, I'll tell you, I can't, uh, um, you know, sometimes I say, well, if I don't know the answer, I'll make something up, but I really won't do that. <laughs> yeah. And um, I was just thinking, because if it's okay to share this, and and you can say if it's not, but your wife Betsy got in contact with me, and then she um, she told me about you and said, 
and I said, oh, yes, you, you'd be a really good guest to come on. But she told me your story of how you met. Uh-huh. Do, you want, do you want to share that with our listeners? Because I think it's quite sweet. Well, I, I, I will, because uh, I, I have a little bit of an aversion to Facebook, although I use it all the time now for a practice. And I, and I used to use it. Um, just to tell you a little bit about that. I used to use it. Uh, uh, my own private page because the softball team I play on, or one of them, because I play on a 65 and over team now, but I still play on this other team. We were sponsored by Pabst Brewing. That's a beer. That's a, that's a beer uh, uh, brewer in the states, and and they they make uh, something called Old Style. And Old Style was a beer, and people who know the, of the Chicago Cubs, Old Style was like a sponsor or whatever for the Chicago Cubs for years. Well, most of the guys on the softball team are from Chicago. And that's not even how we got the sponsorship. But Old Style wanted, when we played ball, and especially when we won, they wanted stuff on, on my web page, my, not my web page, on my Facebook page. And then, and then they would take that and they would put it on, on their Facebook page. Um, so I have a private Facebook page, but then the one I'm on most of the time is, my, is the Tri-State Colorectal. So um, in March of, of 2020, um, during the pandemic, I was down here in Florida with, with just spending time with my daughter then because I was having a house built. And, and you know what? It's nice to be in Florida in March. I could ride my bike every day. Well, one day on Facebook, anybody who's familiar with this, you, you see those little things that says people you may know, you know, suggesting friends. And I saw this lady on there and, and she went by her maiden name, Betsy Gorman. And she was standing doing what I thought was a yoga pose. And as it turns out, it was. And it was she was standing uh, on kind of it looked like a bluff over a lake. And she was in Sweden. She has a, a, some good friends live in Sweden. So I sent her a, I sent her a message. I used the whatever, what do they call it? Messenger, private message, whatever it's called. Yeah, on, messenger. Get Facebook. I don't yeah. use that very often either. I said, is this Bethy Gorman, graduate of Wrights Memorial High School, class of 71? So that was maybe the first week of March. And we were just going into shutdown over here, right? So I don't hear anything until my home was done. Uh, my daughter went up with me to kind of help me get stuff moved in. And I hear my phone ding. And I have a, a just a plain old ping for that for that a messenger alert. And I thought, well, I wonder what that is. And I go pick it up. And there's a, there's a, a, there's a I'll just call it a text. It is text. Y- yes, Jim, it is. And I thought, okay, that was very brief. So I sent her a message. Well, I'm nice to hear from you. I hope you're doing well. Um, you, you know, just if something, something to that effect. I didn't hear anything again until June. And then I hear, I get a message from her and it's, uh, sorry, I just don't do this social media stuff very well or very often. So I send her a message back and saying something to the effect, uh, well, I, I don't blame you. I probably would not be on Facebook at all, except for softball team I played with and um, colon cancer survivors that uh, have have a network. That's in fact, why I first got on Facebook. They had a network and I worked with this. uh, It's a national group. It's called the Colon Club. And and it's people under the age of of 40 who've had colon cancer. I said, so I wouldn't be, I wouldn't have been on, probably wouldn't be on Facebook except for that. So then uh, we, we played in a, in a tournament in, in, probably then in mid July and, uh, and, and I, my phone's in the, in the vehicle and we play like nine games in 30 hours. And, and I mean, absolutely beat, we're getting in the car. We had to drive six hours to get back to Evansville. We played down in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And I picked my phone up and she's 
she's got a message on there. She said, okay, here's my story. I had stage four endometrial cancer in 2008 and I had surgery and I had chemo and I guess I'm a miracle because I'm still alive. And so then I responded back to, yes, you are a miracle if you had stage four and then here it is, you know, and, and I, I think to this day, and I think she, she, she went more low carb when she met me, but she always did low carb and she always worked out. And, and so she never, you know, now she, like a lot of us was trying to restrict her fat because that's what she'd been told, but she mm -hmm. also, um, and, and Betsy weighs all of like 90 pounds. And by the way, she's an army vet. You know, I hear Louise talking about her husband. So yeah, she went in the army for three years. Uh, her, her dad, who she was very close to had a, uh, horseback riding accident and was in a coma for three years and passed away. And, and she dropped out of school after her third year at, at, at IU and went in the service. And then, and then after she finished her stint in the service, she went back to school and got her master's and, and, you know, and ended up at that. But so, so that, that conversation then led to us, uh, deciding to get together for coffee. And it's funny how we got to, well, how we got decided to get together. For, we didn't talk to each other live. We were just texting. And I sent her a, I sent her a message one night. It's Friday evening. I remember. I said, you know, we really should just talk on the phone sometime. <laughs> and she said, okay, maybe tomorrow. And we both go to bed or nine o'clock at night and get up at six in the morning or five. I get usually five in the morning. So I'm up getting a cup of coffee. And uh, um, so Dr. Savis, when he talked about his coffee, I made me think of, of my situation. I'm getting a cup of coffee and my phone rings. And not only just my phone, and I was in a call from her. It's a FaceTime call. I never used FaceTime before. <laughs> and she says, I hope you're decent. <laughs> and she's out walking her dog. She's out hiking with her dog. And that's the first time we saw each other really since high school. And from there, here we are married uh, two and a half years later. So you you separate you went to high school together. You separated for what fifty years? No, yeah, maybe. Oh no, yeah, yeah, it would have been because we just had our fiftieth reunion last year. So forty eight years, let's say. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Didn't see her for forty eight years. You I got you got divorced, and her, her husband died, and then uh -huh. now you're now yeah. you're together. Yeah, yeah. It's so sweet. And, and it's here, really sweet. And here, and here, my brother Jose, whom I told you about, you know, who he's originally from Spain via Cuba, came to live with us in sixty or sixty one exact same story, same high school, because it's, it's a, one of the Catholic high schools in, in Evansville. So Jose and, and his wife went to high school together. She became a nun. He got married and then some years later got divorced. She actually married, you know, she dropped out of the, out of the, the order and, and married and had two sons. Her husband passed away. They then got back together and got married. <laughs> so I have, you know, my really only living uh, immediate relative, other than my children and cousins and stuff, is Jose, you know, and of course, we, we are brothers, you know, because we, we grew up together, and we still see each other every other weekend or so. And so he and Billy, and, and I mean, it's, you couldn't write that, you couldn't, they wouldn't accept that as a movie script, I don't think. No, it's too nice. It's too nice. Yeah, yeah. So it's, so, it's uh, yeah, before we finish, hit us with your three top tips. Three top tips. So I'll, I, I kind of wrote these down because I've heard you ask people these before. And I may change them <laughs> as I look at them. Well, the first one is I'd say, going back to my own experience, you can't exercise yourself to, to good health. Exercise is important, but but diet is just important. And, and we all know of good of, of good athletes, well-trained athletes who died of cardiovascular disease because they had no idea what was going on inside their body. They were mm -hmm. suffering from insulin insulin resistance. Uh, their blood sugars may not have been high, 
but the insulin itself, it causes inflammation in the, in, in, in your vascular tree. I mean, anyone who's, anyone who's, who's listening to this, they've heard the other people are a lot more expert on this than I am talk about that. So that's one thing. Um, the, the, the other thing I would say, and this even goes, this went to myself, be your own healthcare advocate. You know, I think I think a lot of people and, and, and being a physician, uh, I know I know a lot of people are afraid to ask questions or or they're afraid to go against their doc and and don't you you be your own healthcare advocate. And, and, and if your physician doesn't want if they don't want to talk to you, then find somebody else, um, uh, you know, you know yourself, you know, and and and. Uh, and, and now this, a lot of this stuff you can find out on your own. You don't have to go to medical school. You can, you can watch lectures. I'm talking about real medical lectures. You can look at the research yourself. Um, it, you can watch experts talk about it. And, and if you have a healthcare provider who won't listen to you or just wants to, you know, put you on a statin or, or tell you to be on a low fat diet or, or whatever, wants to increase your insulin level. Uh, find somebody else. Be your own healthcare advocate. Yeah, and I think uh, even even in the UK where we have the NHS and you're fairly limited to who you can see, so you can't choose your doctor. I think you can still, if you feel you're not getting the right advice or you're not being listened to, I think you could still look for another doctor, even within a practice. Maybe you see a different doctor within the practice, right, right, yeah. or maybe you just go somewhere else. Maybe privately you know it's you right. know it's expensive but maybe it's worth that 50 or 100 pounds to to get a different opinion especially if you don't feel like you're being listened well, to well i i myself started treating myself you know because my primary care doc you know he he didn't like to hear my discussion about statins and 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 fat you know and and he knows i'm you know i i just I've been through two primary care docs because they got they're older than me and they both retired. <laughs> I'm on my third one now. And and uh, when I first went to see him, I tell him on a low carb diet and and I said, you know, I asked him if he used that with his patients. And no, he doesn't. He said, Well, I can't do that. He said, You know, we live in southern Indiana. Now this won't mean much to people around the world, but if you're from states, it might. We have a high rate of obesity in Indiana, and and it's they're kind of they're very large German and 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 Irish population here. We don't really have like ethnic groups. People have been here so long. They don't, you know, other than your name, they don't know what, what, what your ethnic, you know, where, where your background was, mm. but a lot of farmers. Okay. And he says to me, uh, he says to me, he said, well, I can't put people on a low carb diet. Cause you know what they would do, Jim? And I said, well, he said, they'd eat bacon. I said, what's wrong with bacon? <laughs> So, so I've had that conversation with my own healthcare provider and I stopped the, the statin that, that he had me on. Um, and, and I do take a statin. Uh, I take a very low dose and I base this on recommendations I got from, from physicians on the internet. Mm. Okay. Because, because of my, 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 because of my, my own personal family background, I'm a person who should be on one very low dose because they do have anti, not for the lipid effect, for the anti-inflammatory effect. Hmm. Uh, so I've had to do that. And I know it's hard for me and I'm a doc. So yes, it, it, you just, you, you know, take, you're, you're your own best advocate, take care of yourself. Yeah. And the third thing I would say, I'm going to use a term that uh, oh, a great friend of mine that I played softball with uh, shares my, uh, my, my, my mother's maiden name. So he and I always call each other cousin, although he's from Chicago and I'm, who knows. But uh, I like I like racing. 
all right. I mean, I'm like IndyCar, Formula One, you know, I spend my Sunday mornings watching Formula One. I love an expression they use, push, push. You know, I don't know. If, I don't know if you ever watch racing. There are going to be people listening to this. They do push, push. So one day out of my mouth when we were in the middle of a game, uh, you know, I'm just, I'm always, I'm kind of a chatterbox there too. I come into the dugout and I'm saying something. I, I, I look at Gary and I say, hey, Gary, time to push, push. Okay. Cause push, push is we, we've got to go harder now. And he started saying it all the time. And I thought about that when I was thinking about this and I, and, and here's where, what my push, push applies to push, push always on your friends, your family, and especially the medical community, push mm-hmm. them to do the right thing. Push, push. Yeah. That, that can sometimes backfire though, can't it? I know. <laughs> you, what you got to do is you just got to tell them, like with my office staff, I tell them and I just, and then I, I let it go. You know, I, you, you don't, you don't want to be overbearing. It, it's, that's a, that's a tough judgment call. When are you being overbearing and you, you're doing it for their own good. And you know, something that I've used with people through the years, I've used it with my, my own kids. If I didn't love you, I wouldn't tell you that. Yeah. And I've used, I, I said that to one of my partners one time. I said, if I didn't love you, I wouldn't say this to you. If I didn't care. And I do care. That is really powerful, actually. Yeah. So that's, uh, uh, you know, I probably heard that from some, you know, most of us, most of the, the crazy stuff I come up with, I heard from somebody else. <laughs> so, you know, it's, so I told you, I might learn more from, from the two of you than I, uh, th- than, than I know on my own. Yeah. Yeah. Jim, thank you so much. It's been really fascinating talking to you. I'm really glad that Betsy reached out to me and, and introduced us. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, and, and you're welcome. I, I, uh, I, I really looked forward to it. I, I, I did. And it's because uh, I've had a chance now to listen to your podcast. And, uh, and you know, I, I drove down here. It's, a, it's about a 15-hour drive. I didn't make it all in one day. So that's what I do when I'm driving. I, I pop on all these, uh, all these different, what I call educational podcasts. Yeah. yeah, they are educational. Yeah, me too. I'm always listening when I'm driving. So, thank you so much. Thank you for welcome. your time. You're welcome. Hope to see you and talk with you again sometime. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. I really enjoyed my chat with Dr. Jim. It was great to hear from a doctor who's dealing with cancer. And although he wasn't formally telling his patients about low carb, he was bringing it in, in a way, and giving his patients another option. This is just another option. So we're not saying that low carbon keto is the only way to go, but we want it to be offered as an option. We know the only way that this will change is a movement from the grassroots upwards, from the ground up. And because there's too much money at stake in the big food and big pharma industries for it to happen any other way. So we we need to keep just moving forward and plodding forward and telling people about it. One of the things that Jim said was tell everyone. He said, he said, he says, I wouldn't be telling you this if I didn't love you. That is really powerful. One of the things that Jim said is that colon cancer is largely preventable. And he also said, you don't have to cure diabetes if you prevent it. So you might be trying to deal with an illness or you might be in the prevention stage of your journey. But how do we get others to prevent any possible illness in the future? How do we get them to focus on health 
rather than waiting for the disease to happen and then have to deal with it? That's a big question, but something for all of us to think about. Did you enjoy Jim's love story? I thought it was very sweet. Anyway, to get to the show notes, go to fabulouslyketo.com forward slash podcast forward slash zero nine three. It would be great if you could support us through Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash fabulously keto and you can choose the monthly amount you wish. Can you recommend a guest we can interview? If you can, click on the link in the show notes to send us your recommendation. Would you like to join our Facebook group? Search for Fabulously Keto on Facebook. Our Facebook page is called Fabulously Keto and you can follow us there. Or you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Fabulously Keto. Or follow us on Instagram, Fabulously Keto 1. Did you enjoy the show? Let us know you listened by tagging us in your Insta story or Instagram post using the handle Fabulously Keto 1 and the hashtag TFKP. All the links are on the website and in the show notes. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, click the subscribe button. Reviews help us to be found and reach new listeners. Please leave a review of our show on your preferred podcast listening platform. We appreciate you taking the time and read them all. Disclaimer. The information in this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. Nothing in this podcast can be taken as advice, whether our guests are doctors, healthcare professionals or not. They're only sharing their own opinions and stories, and this does not constitute a doctor-patient relationship. It's always best to seek professional medical advice should you wish to make any changes to your current medication or treatments. Also speak to your own doctor if you have any concerns about your health or you wish to make lifestyle changes, especially if you're taking medication.